Now, friends, in the 21st Psalm, we've labeled this a messianic psalm. Now, it's not so called a messianic psalm in the list that I gave at the beginning. And it is not quoted as such verbatim as referring to Christ. But I don't think you can read it without coming to the judgment that this refers to him. Now, the fact of the matter is, Israel, from the very beginning, said this psalm spoke of the Messiah, treated it that way. For instance, the Targum, which is the Chaldean paraphrase of the Old Testament, and the Talmud, teach that the king mentioned in this psalm is the Messiah. And the great Talmudic scholar, Rabbi Solomon Isaacy, known by the name of Rashi, he was born in 1040 A.D. Now, he endorses this interpretation that it speaks of the Messiah, but he suggested that it should be given up on account of Christians making use of this psalm as an evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And may I say to you, I think that is a very good testimony that this psalm does speak of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a psalm that is important in another direction. This is a psalm that has been used by the liturgical churches that observe certain days, you know. They observe, for instance, Ascension Day. And they use this psalm as commemorating that day. Actually, the return of the Lord to glory and his presence there as our great high priest. And I don't know why we fundamentalists haven't paid more attention to the ascension of Christ. We observe Christmas, we observe Easter, and the day of Pentecost, a great many observe that. But how about the ascension? And to me, that is a great day, and I'm of the opinion that we probably ought to pay more attention to it. Well, we can in this psalm because it speaks of the ascension of Christ. And we see the king in heaven here, and we see that judgment is coming upon those that have rejected him. It is a psalm of David, so-called, in the inspired text. And it includes also his coming reign as king here upon the earth. And the psalm undoubtedly was used in the temple worship. Someone has said, in fact, it was a liberal scholar, Dr. Peroni, that each Jewish monarch was but a feeble type of Israel's true king and all the hopes and aspirations of pious hearts. However, they might have for their immediate object the then reigning monarch, whether David himself or one of his sons, still looked upon these to him who should be David's lord as well as his son. That, by the way, is quite a testimony. Now, will you notice this psalm? the way it opens. Psalm 21, verse 1, "...the king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation how greatly shall he rejoice." Now, this is a psalm that very candidly could refer to David, and I think it does refer to him. But I think the primary interpretation, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it begins with, "...shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, 
and in thy salvation. Now, it is said of him, you remember, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. And what? He ascended into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the Father yonder in heaven. This speaks of the joy of our Lord in having wrought out our salvation for us. And he rejoices in the power and strength that's been bestowed upon him who's gone to heaven, angels and principalities being made subject to him. And today he's able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God through him. This is a wonderful psalm. Now, if you'll notice verse 2, Thou hast given him his heart's desire. His prayer's been answered, by the way. The desire of his heart has been given to him. And he says, you remember in his great high priestly prayer where he turned in his report to God, his final report in John 17, Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. Now, this prayer... All his other requests, they've been answered, as we see in this prayer. This is the prayer of the ascension. He's at God's right hand. Thou hast given him his heart's desire, and hast not withheld the request of his lips. He could say when he was here on this earth, Father, I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. And That's going to be answered someday. We're going to be with him. And he came down to this earth to make that possible. And we're told here, And hast not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. This is something you ought to meditate about. Think on for a few minutes, by the way. Now, let's move on into the psalm. And as we do, I'm going to lift out now this other translation that we've referred to from time to time. And will you notice verse 4? He asked life of thee, thou gavest it him. Length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. For thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou dost delight him with joy in thy presence. Now he came to give his life, a ransom for many down here. And you find him in humiliation, and you find him pleading again and again in prayer. And we find him yonder in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the psalmist, again, when we get over to Psalm 102, verses 23 and 24, says, "...he weakened my strength in the way, he shortened my days. I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days." Thy days are throughout all generations. You see, he asked for life. He died in the very prime of life, 33 years of age. And he prayed, you remember, let this cup pass. But we're told here in Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications, was strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him out of death, and he was heard in that he feared. Why? How was he heard, friends? He died. How was he heard? God raised him from the dead, and he now lives in his glorified human body forever and ever, and he's right now at God's right hand. That is, 
he hadn't come by the time you hear this program, that's where he is. And his glory is great in thy salvation. Oh, the glory that should accrue to him because he saved you and saved me. Now, we move on in this. In verse 7 here, we read, For the king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. We want to read on now in this other translation. I pick up here at verse 8, by the way. It says, Thine hand shall find out all thine enemies. Now, he not only is a God of salvation, but because of his death upon the cross for sinners, those that have become his enemies, he knows them. Thy hand shall find out all thine enemies. Thy right hand shall find out those that hate thee. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thy coming. You don't believe in hell? Bible teaches it, my friend. You're in disagreement with the Bible. man came to me and said, I don't believe in hell. And I said to him, you know you're in disagreement with the Bible? He said, I don't care. I don't believe in it. Well, I said, you will someday. You're going to believe in it someday. You better believe in it now, my friend. In fact, someday you'll know whether it's true or not. Now, hell's not a pleasant subject. Who said it was? God says he does not take any delight in the loss. God's strange work is called judgment. His wonderful work is salvation. He wants to save. But if you won't have it, his way, his salvation, then there's nothing but judgment that remains. Listen to him here. Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thy coming. Jehovah shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Friends, that's very clear. I think fire is fire, and judgment is judgment. Listen, their fruit shalt thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the children of men. For they intended evil against thee, they devised mischief, unable to perform. For thou wilt make them turn their back. With thy strings wilt thou aim at their faces, be thou exalted in thy strength, Jehovah. We will sing and praise thy power. This is a marvelous psalm. We saw the cross and the sufferings in this psalm. And he did it for the joy that was set before him, because he could save you and me. And his prayers have been answered. Now the king's in heaven. We see him there crowned with glory and honor. He's there in behalf of his people. He's there in unspeakable joy and waiting for his manifestation in kingly glory. I'd like to give you another picture of the Lord Jesus today. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Somebody says in every picture I've ever seen of him is a solemn, serious-looking Christ. I don't believe that's the way he looks today. I don't know how he looks, and I don't care for the pictures. May I say to you, he's right under God's right hand right now, and his heart's just filled with joy. And he wants to communicate that joy to you and me today. Oh, that you and I might get a glimpse of him today. And his enemies conspired against him when he was down here. And he lent himself to those. And we find that his enemies here conspire against him. They attempt to get to him. And though he's there today in unspeakable joy, and he's waiting for his manifestation in 
wonderful glory. Now, he was on earth, and he was trusting in Jehovah. His enemies conspired against him. And as that vision in Revelation, you remember, it's in Revelation 12, the dragon wanted to devour the man-child. Well, now that dragon is Satan. The man-child is Christ, and the woman is Israel. But the child, we are told, was caught up to God and to his throne, and he was destined to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's where he is right now. You see that Satan, if he'd stayed down here in the weakness of humanity, Satan would have destroyed him. But he's been caught up to heaven. This is a great psalm, you see, of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. He finished our salvation for us. And he cannot be moved, we're told here. He cannot be moved. Verse 7, he shall not be moved. What a glorious, wonderful picture. And you have picture judgment. And this is not the only one. It's in Revelation. I tell you, it's a pretty serious picture that's given to us there. And then Paul mentions in Second Thessalonians, the first chapter, listen to this. In Second Thessalonians 1, verse 7, "...and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them." that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. What a picture that you have here of him coming in judgment for his enemies. My friend, this is the glorious psalm of the ascension of Christ. And it is. And by the way, what is your relationship to him today? If he's not your Savior, if you haven't trusted the one who came down here to die, and he today is filled with joy up yonder because he wrought out your salvation and mine. Now, if you want to turn your back on it, then judgment is coming. This very psalm of the ascension makes it very clear of the wonderful, glorious grace of God in Christ, and in that same one, judgment someday. Now, that brings us now to probably the greatest psalm of all in this section that we've been in. Up to now, we've come, I think, to the greatest psalm, and this is Psalm 22. We have this, as we've said, it's in book form, it's on tape, and you could get it any way you want it. Get it on cassette tape. The message that we've given in the past on Psalm 22. And I consider it personally the greatest one of all. When I come to this psalm, I feel like I'm standing on holy ground. It's the psalm of the cross. Now, Psalm 1, we had a portrait of Christ, his character, his life, and his practice. But here we have the passion of Christ in depth. Psalm 22 is an x-ray that penetrates right down into his thoughts. We see the anguish of his passion, and his soul is laid bare in this psalm. Now, in the Gospels, the four Gospels, you have the historical fact of his death recorded. And you have some of the events which surrounded his crucifixion 
and attended his death. They are placed there in the canon of Scripture. But friends, his thought life is given in detail here in Psalm 22. You see what went on in his heart and soul and mind while he's hanging there upon the cross when you read this psalm. It always was my custom as pastor of a church to have services on Good Friday. And most of the time, we took the seven last sayings of Christ from the cross. And I think that I've heard over 100 men take these seven words and develop them. And to me, it was always a spiritual feast just to see how each man would develop his subject. Now, I got through that many new and profitable thoughts. Now, you may get an idea when we get into this psalm that we're having a Good Friday service, but there'll be one radical departure. And note this, instead of standing beneath the cross and looking up and listening to him, in this psalm, we're going to hang with him on the cross. And we're going to view the crucifixion of Christ from the cross as he saw it. We're going to look beneath, see what went on around that cross. We're going to see also what went on in his own soul as we see him hanging there, suspended between earth and heaven. You see, we were there, actually, on the cross. He was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Peter put it like this, 1 Peter 2.24, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, might live under righteousness, by whose stripes we're healed." Now, we have made the statement that this psalm puts down on the cross of Christ an x-ray so that we are not reading the Gospels now, where you have the historical facts given of his crucifixion. But here in this psalm, you penetrate right into that darkness, and you hang with him there upon the cross, and you see it as he sees it, you feel as he feels there. Now, this psalm opened with that awful cry, and all of the seven last sayings of Christ are in this psalm here, either given verbatim or else we have the background for him saying what he did. And this is that plaintive and desperate cry of that forlorn man forsaken of God. Let me read verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me from the words of my roaring? Now, in the first part of this psalm, in fact, all the way down in this psalm, through verse 21, we have the humiliation of Christ. From verse 22 through verse 31, the rest of the psalm, we have the exaltation of Christ, the humiliation and exaltation. Now, this psalm, therefore, in the humiliation, it opens with that plaintive and desperate cry of this forlorn man who's forsaken of God. You know, there's been an attempt made to play down the stark reality and the horrendous tragedy that it looked like was taking place on that cross. And they attempt to destroy that horrendous fact and the bitter truth 
that he was forsaken of God. I have an article, and it says that actually Jesus was not forsaken. They translate it like this in the Peshitta. My God, my God, for this was I kept. To begin with, the Peshitta's not a reputable manuscript to use anyway, and it would not be the one to use. This is what he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a picture that we have here. And will you notice we have here the human sufferings of the Lord Jesus. He bare our sins in his own body on the tree. This is a picture that I think you can pick up in the epistle to the Hebrews. For instance, you could go back to the second chapter of Hebrews. Probably I should do that. Let me read verse 9 there. But we see Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And then when you drop down to verse 14, I read language like this, "...for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. He likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, deliver them who through fear of death, for all their lifetime subject to bondage. We see him here. For in that he himself hath suffered being tested, he's able to succor or help them that are tested. This is a picture of him as he's hanging there on the cross. And this is a desperate cry. And in that desperate and despairing hour, he was abandoned of God. No place to turn. He couldn't turn to heaven at this moment, and he couldn't turn to earth. No place to turn. Now, the question, why did God forsake him? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Now, here we have actually the human sufferings of the Lord Jesus. And I want to emphasize this. It's his human sufferings. We see him hanging there as a man the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Yes, by the way, he was made a man, because we're lower than angels. Why? Listen to the text. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death, for every man. Now, he bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, might live unto righteousness. Now, as the perfect man, he learned to depend and rest on God when he walked down here. He said, I do always the things that please him. And in that desperate and despairing hour, he was abandoned of God. No place to turn. He couldn't turn to God. He couldn't turn to those beneath the cross. They were crucifying him. And his friends and those who loved him were helpless. Now, why did God forsake him? But let me read on here. Will you notice? It says here, O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Now, what was happening here? He was forsaken of God, we say, and yet we're told that at the same time God was in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself. And John says in John 16, 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own shall leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone, because the Father's with me. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Now, will you notice what was happening? He was made sin for us. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Now, the why is not the why of impatience. It's not the why of despair. It's not the why of doubt. Because that's my kind of why. I say to the Lord sometimes, why? And there's doubt in my question. And there's sometimes impatience. And there's sometimes despair. Now, this is the human cry of intense suffering, aggravated by the anguish of his innocent and holy life. It is the awful and agonizing cry of the loneliness of his passion. Friends, he was alone with the sins of the world. Why? Well, verse 3 says, "...but thou art holy, O thou who inhabitest the praises of Israel." He was holy. God is holy. And when Christ was made sin, there had to be that separation, that bifurcation between the Father and the Son. Now, have you noticed that it says here, "...why art thou so far from helping me from the words of my roaring?" I want you to notice that. At his trial, he was silent. As a sheep before her shearers was dumb, he opened not his mouth. But yonder on the cross, he cries out like a wounded animal, like a lion, my friend. It was the plaintive shriek and wail of unutterable woe. And you know, no gospel writer actually describes that. Why? Some of them were there and heard it because I don't think they could have described it at all. Now, if you move on down in the psalm, he says, Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted thou didst deliver them. And they were sinners, but they cast themselves on the mercy of God. But his death is different, you see. And now we're told, he says, But I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. And what did they do? Well, notice this. We read, All they who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he'd deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. You see, that was literally fulfilled. And what was it he said? What was his reaction to this? You see, the victim on the cross begins to take note of the brutal mob and the hardened spectators beneath the cross. And they stayed there. They shouldn't have. After they got him on the cross, they should have left. But they stood there, ridiculed him, and then sat down and watched him die. And friends, you can't go any farther than that. All the venom and the vileness of the human heart was poured out like an open sewer there like the deadly fangs of a poisonous snake. I think Saul of Tarsus was there because he called himself the chief of sinners. And that's where the chief of sinners were at the crucifixion of Christ. 
Now, what's his reaction to this? Listen to him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, if he hadn't said that, they would have committed the unpardonable sin. Now, he beholds not only the eyes of hate down there, but he sees the eyes of love. Will you notice this? He says here, as they ridiculed him, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted him. But now he sees someone else, sees his mother. Verse 9, But thou art he who took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's body. Now, what was it he said there? Woman, behold thy son. And you'll recall that back yonder at his first miracle, when he began his ministry, you remember she said to him, they have no wine. He says, mine hour hasn't come. I'll clear you someday, but not now. Three years later, hanging on the cross, he says, woman, behold your son. Mine hour now has come. In three days, I'll be back from the grave. I'll clear your name. And he did that. This is a marvelous, wonderful psalm, by the way. Now, as we move on down in this, and I'll hit some high points now. He says, verse 13, They gaped upon me with their mouths like a ravening and a roaring lion. That lion, I think, is Rome. The Gentiles were there. And then verse 14, he says, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. And what a picture you have here. This is a picture of crucifixion long before it was a public method of execution. And in crucifixion, there is that excessive perspiration. And we're told that his heart melted within him. You remember, John tells us about that. He noted that when the spear went in his side, it came out both blood and water. I think it can be said. Now, I know that medical science and many Christian doctors, they've explained this from a medical standpoint. But from my standpoint, he died of a broken heart, ruptured heart. John's the one who took note of it. Now, in verse 15, he says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me to the dust of death. Here's where he said, I thirst. And they gave him vinegar to drink. Now in verse 16, I read, For dogs have compassed me. Who are dogs? Gentiles. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. This is a picture, by the way, to see crucifixion. This is when they pierce hands and feet. And then verse 17, I may count all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Now, friends, I believe this was his greatest humiliation and suffering. He was crucified naked. It's very difficult for us to comprehend in this age of nudity and pornography when Apparently, neither men nor women have any shame today. And that, by the way, the nakedness of this hour reveals how depraved we've become. You know, an animal goes around with at least a fur on it. But man today, 
who was made without the hair and without fur, no covering, so that he could cover himself. And today he's taken it off. That reveals our depravity. Our Lord, I think, was greatly humiliated in his crucifixion, and it was a great suffering for it. Now, verse 19 here, this was fulfilled on the cross. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only one, from the power of the dog. Now, you'll notice in your translation, it's my darling, but the New Schofield Bible has it accurately, my only one from the power. And what a picture that is. And it's here that he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now, will you notice verse 21? Here is a picture of the cross, if there ever was one. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns. Now, I think here that the New Schofield Bible has a wrong word. They say wild oxen. I don't think so. I think that the unicorn is proper. Now, this is a prophetic picture of the Roman cross. Now, the unicorn was thought to be a mythical animal. That is, you find it in Greek mythology. But recent investigations have found out there was this animal that had one horn animal of size smaller than the elephant, very much like the rhino. And you know, many of them have one horn, vicious and brutal and a killer. And that one horn, I think, is a picture of the cross. You know, there are two words that are translated by the cross. And we think of the cross as being an upright with a cross bar on it. But you'll find out that the Word of God has two words that are translated cross. Neither one of them mean upright with a crossbar over it. For instance, in Matthew 27, 40, we read, Thou that despisest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, what is that? That's stauros. That doesn't mean what we think of today as a cross. And it's the same word Paul used when he says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Now, I think it was just one upright. I don't think Rome took time to make up some nice, pretty little crosses like you see stuck around today on different buildings. I don't think that at all. I think it's just one crude, rough upright, and they nailed him to that. If you get my little book, you'll get a great deal of information on this, by the way. Now, the other word is zulon. That just means piece of wood. And it's called a tree, if you please, in Acts thirteen twenty nine. When they had fulfilled all that was written to him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Well, no tree is in the shape of our cross day. It's just a trunk of a tree. That's all. That cross became really the tree of life. You remember the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? Somehow it got moved out, but here it is. If you want life today, you come to him. Now we have a radical change in the psalm, a real bifurcation. We have the sufferings of Christ. We've had now the glory that should follow. Now will you notice verse 22? He says, "'I will declare thy name unto my brethren.'" 
In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Now he says in verse 23, Ye who fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. You see, this is the glory that should follow. And here I will declare thy name unto my brethren. That's interesting. Simon Peter that day speaking to these people said, There's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. I'll declare thy name among the brethren. Now, will you notice we have two other words of Christ from the cross. I'll have to move down and pick them up. Verse 25, he says, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. Now, we have here one of these words. What is it? The thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord Jesus said, I'll remember my vows. <laughs> and the meek are going to eat and be satisfied. And that poor thief finds out he's going to pay his vows. Lord, remember me. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now I drop down to the last verse of the psalm. It says, They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. That's the reason you and I are hearing it today. That he hath done this. That he hath done this? Yes. What was his last word? It's finished. And this is it. He hath done this. A finished redemption presented to the world 1,900 years ago. He did on the cross all that is necessary for your salvation and mine. And the focal point is that cross and the six hours he was on it. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And on that cross, in those last three hours... In that darkness, it was spiritual light. He's there paying for your sin and my sin there upon the cross. My friends, that last three hours becomes all important for you and me, for it's in that last three hours that that cross became the altar of God on which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief, and he treated him as he must treat any sinner because he took my sin there. He paid the penalty of it, and by faith today I can appropriate that because he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, he'd be lifted up, and whosoever believe on him, and whosoever means Vernon McGee, and whosoever means you, and you, and you, and you, wherever you are today. It means you, but it means you'll have to reach out in faith and trust him as your Savior who died for you on the cross. Now, that brings us to the end of this very wonderful psalm. Now, today, friends, we come to this 23rd psalm. And as we come to this psalm, I want to repeat again what we said last time, and that is that Psalm 23, which is so popular, has been so wonderful, 
is meaningless without Psalm 22. And that leads me to say that we have a trilogy or a triptych here of three psalms that actually belong together. They are the shepherd psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Now, in Psalm 22, we saw the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember, made the statement, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. John 10, verse 11. And we saw that last time. Now, Psalm 23 is the great shepherd. And we are told the great shepherd of the sheep. And this is found in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, verse 20. And this, of course, is that great benediction that is there at the end of Hebrews. And I'm sure many of you have heard it. And I know I've used it for years. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect. That is complete in every work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, that's the great shepherd. And Psalm 23 reveals him as the great shepherd. Now, we'll see next Psalm 24, and there he is the chief shepherd. And Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So that in Psalm 22, we see the cross. Psalm 23, the crook, the shepherd's crook. And Psalm 24, the crown, the king's crown. Psalm 22, he's the savior. Psalm 23, he's the satisfier. Psalm 24, he's the sovereign. Psalm 22, he's the foundation. Psalm 23, he's the manifestation. Psalm 24, he is the expectation. And in Psalm 22, he's dying. Psalm 23, he's living. Psalm 24, he's coming. Psalm 22 speaks of the past. Psalm 23 of the present. Psalm 24 of the future. And Psalm 22, he gives his life for the sheep. Psalm 23, he gives his love to the sheep. And Psalm 24, he gives us light when he shall appear. Now, we have, therefore, in these three very wonderful psalms, a picture. Now, let's zero in on Psalm 23. And it's very familiar. It's probably the most familiar passage that there is in the Word of God. No portion in writing of any kind, anywhere, has been so widely circulated as this. The Jew, both Orthodox and Reformed, knows this psalm. The Christian, Huguenot, Covenanter, Vadois, Cromwell, Puritan, and all the denominations and all Christian groups acquainted with Psalm 23. And the world has caught its beauty. More's written on this. It's very short. It's very simple. Only six verses. It's like the Gettysburg Address as far as brevity is concerned. There are several very interesting little mottos 
that go along, I think, with this psalm. Someone has said, I do not care how much a man says if he says it in a few words. Well, you have a few words in Psalm 23. And then there is another. If folk who do not have anything to say would refrain from saying it, it'd be a better world. And that probably is true. And there was a business executive years ago that had this little motto up on the wall in his office for everyone to see that entered. It says, if you have anything important to say, say it in five minutes. Well, it'll take you just 45 seconds to read the 23rd Psalm. It is simple. It's not the language of philosophy. It's not the language of theology. It's not a legal or a scientific document. It is sublimely simple and simply sublime. And there are, I think, two things that we ought to know about this psalm before we look at the text. It's agreed that David is the author. But the question has always been, did he write it when he was a shepherd boy or an aged king? And candidly, friends, it's important to know that. Dr. Frank Morgan has called this the psalm of the old shepherd. I like that. I agree with it. David the king, you see, never forgot David the shepherd boy. And you have here not the musings of a green, inexperienced lad, but you have the mature deliberations of a ripe experience. You see, David, when he came close to the end of his life. He looked back upon his checkered career. He looked back upon his life, and it was then that he gave Psalm 23. And the old king on the throne remembered that shepherd boy and wrote this psalm. You see, life had beaten and battered and baffled and bludgeoned this man. He was a hardened soldier, a veteran who knew victory and privation and hardship. He knew song and shadow. He was tested and tried. And therefore, you have in this not the theorizings of immaturity, but you have the fruit and judgment born of a long life. And then here's something that is more vitally linked with the contents, I think, of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. But what authority do you say that? Is this a psalm for everybody, irrespective of individuals? I don't think so. I think that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 go together. And you have one story told here. And you have to know him as the good shepherd that gave his life for the sheep before you can know him as the great shepherd today. You must know the shepherd of Psalm 22 before you can say Psalm 23. And now, let's look at this psalm. I have attempted to divide it, and you'll notice in my notes, you have, first of all, in the first two verses, a revelation of the sanctuary of the shepherd's soul. And verses 3 and 4, the record of the thoughts of the shepherd's mind. And then 5 and 6, the reflection of the happiness and hope of the shepherd's heart. Now let's look at that 
here for just a moment. You have here in verse 1, listen to this, "...the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me." Now, here is a he and me psalm again. The emphasis now, nothing between the man's soul and God. Now, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, you have here in verse 1 a declaration and a deduction. The Lord is my shepherd. And it's one thing again to say the Lord is a shepherd. A lot of people can say that. Sounds good. This is a beautiful psalm. But today, can you actually say, the Lord is my shepherd? And by the authority of his redemption, his death and resurrection, today we can say, by faith we've trusted him, and he's my shepherd. How wonderful that is. It's easy for somebody to say, the Lord will be my shepherd. But David didn't say that the Lord is my shepherd. And you remember in John 10, when these Pharisees came and religious rulers and made their verbal attack upon him, he said, you believe not because you're not my sheep. I've said that to you already. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. And so that's another way. He said that, and because he said that, I can say today, the Lord is my shepherd. And not, I have not wanted, but I shall not want. And so you have here in this verse, I shall not want. What is it I need? Well, I need safety. I'm a sheep. (laughs) And a sheep is a stupid little animal, and I need safety. And therefore, he sees, I won't want, he protects. And if a little sheep can say, well, I shall not want. If a little sheep says, I shall never perish, it's because he's got a wonderful shepherd. Because a little old sheep's stupid. And a friend of mine who moved up into Oregon, and he had heard me talk about sheep a great deal. I use the illustration so much. So he decided to get several sheep. And he had me out for dinner when I was up there, and he took me out to show me the sheep. And he said, now look here, Dr. McGee, you gave me the impression that the little old sheep were sweet, little, nice, little animals that were so helpless. He says, I want to tell you they're the stubbornness, they're hard-headed. In fact, he says they are pig-headed. He said, it's terrible the way that they act. And he said, you know, they're dirty and filthy animals. I said, that's the human race, you know. They set us forth. What a picture they are. We need safety and we need sufficiency. And you notice what he says here in verse 2. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. That's safety. And we are told here that hungry sheep will not lie down. That means he's our sufficiency. And then there's satisfaction. He leadeth me beside still waters. Sheep don't like to drink turbulent or stagnant water. They don't want to drink where the hogs drink. Now, the human family today needs rest. Not so much physical or mental, 
but the rest of the soul. You remember what David said in Psalm 55, 6? Oh, that I had the wings like a dove. He wanted to get away from it. What he's after, but that didn't help because he'd already found out by the advice of those. They said, why don't you get away from it? Why don't you fly away like a bird to your mountain? I won't solve your problems. And he found out that it's rest in the Lord. Wait patiently upon him. And the Lord Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll rest you. Now we have in this psalm, in verses 3 and 4, we have a record of the shepherd's mind. That is, of the thoughts of the shepherd's mind. Listen to him here. He restoreth my soul. David knew what that was. David had sinned. He was that little lost sheep that got out from the fold. He restoreth my soul, and he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But we must follow. You notice what he said. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. That's the way you tell his sheep. You see, in that day, a shepherd never drove his sheep. The sheep followed him. That's not true in that land today. Every now and then you'll see a shepherd ahead of his sheep, but very seldom. But in that day, he knew his sheep. He'd been with them day after day. They followed him. Now we have here in verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's courage and comfort. Now, death is, I think, the supreme test of life. And he's not saying to wait till you got on your deathbed. The human family, the entire human family today is in the shadow of death. It's a picture of a man when you're born, you start down a great canyon. And that canyon is the valley of the shadow of death. And you're constantly in it. Today, you know, they say here in Los Angeles that when you cross the street, you better move in a hurry because we only have the quick and the dead. If you're not quick, you'll be dead crossing the street. You're always in the shadow of death. Someone put it like this, the moment that gives you life begins to take it away from you. And so we're all of us in Death Valley. All of us are there and the shadow of death on us. And though I walk through it, I'll fear no evil. That's the courage and comfort that he gives. And when of our loved ones die, well, we can always have what? We can have courage and comfort if that one is a child of God. I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. And we can know that he's with us at all times and even at the time of death. For thou art with me. I want him with me when my time comes to die. Now, will you notice thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And here, will you notice this? Rod and staff. A rod was for defense. A staff was for direction. And we had it put like this. Thy gentle reproof and severe rebuke. He does both today. He has a rod for our defense, but he has a staff for our direction because these little old sheep are bound to stray, and he has a staff for that. And they comfort me. I know this. I've learned this, friends. I'm getting up now 
to be an old man. And I look back on life, and I know this, that rod is a comfort. And he's used it on me several times, and I thank him for it because it's got me back into the fold. We need that. Then we come to the last of this. We have a reflection here of the happiness and hope of the shepherd's heart. Will you listen to this? Verse 5. Thou preparest the table before me. We have here felicity and fruitfulness and fullness. All of that's undergirded with joy. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. What is that table today? I think it's the Lord's table, by the way. Back there, I think it was that God promised Israel physical blessings. Us, I think he's promised spiritual blessings. Now he says, Thou anointest my head with oil. And that oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. We need that anointing today. We can't face life alone. And my cup runneth over. And that's joy. We need to be undergirded with joy today. He says, I've come that you might have life, have it more abundantly, and that your joy might be full. And like the little girl prayed, she said, Lord, fill up my cup. I can't hold very much, but I can run over a whole lot. We need Christians today that are running over. Then we have verse 6, all the way from the green pastures and still waters to the Father's house. He's our shepherd. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he told me, he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I do, I'm going to come and receive you again. You know, sheep aren't much, and we're not pedigreed sheep, by the way, but we do have a wonderful shepherd. Can you say it today at this moment? The Lord is my shepherd. If you can, you can say the rest of it. If he is the shepherd that gave his life for the sheep, and he's your Savior, you can say this psalm. Now we come to Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 is the psalm of the crown. It's a very wonderful psalm, and I'm going to just hit a high point here. Actually, it is not arranged in our translation probably like it should be. Verses 1 and 2 are a chorus. The earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they who dwell therein. He hath founded it upon the seas, established it upon the floods. Now, that's a chorus. Then next, you have a solo, and all of this goes together. Now, tradition claims that this psalm was composed when the ark, was brought up from Kirjith Jerim to Mount Zion, and there's where David had set up a tabernacle and then prepared to build the temple in which the ark was placed. Now, it was sung, therefore, thinking in an antiphonal way. You have, first of all, a chorus, these first two verses, then a solo, and then you have an answering solo in verse 4 and a chorus in verse 5. And six, and then when you get to verse 7, why they enter Zion, and I think that everybody joins in on that last. Must have been wonderful to have heard this, and we have here in this psalm the companions of the king 
who entered the kingdom, and then the coming of the king to set up his kingdom here upon this earth. That's the way this psalm divides itself. And will you notice very briefly, he says, the earth is the Lord's. What a wonderful, speaks of him again as the creator. This earth belongs to him, friends. It doesn't belong to the Democrats or the Republicans. It doesn't belong to the president, whoever he might be. It doesn't belong to communism. There's so many people today that want to run this earth. But it belongs to God. And he founded it upon the sea, established it upon the flood. And you'll remember back there on the third day that he separated the waters. He gathered the waters together and the dry land appeared out of the waters. And it had been submerged. It was life out of death. Actually speaks of resurrection. Now you have this wonderful solo. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Who's going to? Well, verse 4. He who hath clean hands, a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. May I say that lets me out. <laughs> I won't be there, friends. But I'm going to be there. You know why? Because I'm going to be there in Christ. He has undertaken to present me before the throne of his presence, faultless. What a beautiful picture this is. Now listen to that chorus. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. This is the generation of them who seek him, who seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Now they entered Jerusalem. I think this is two pictures that you have here. This is a picture when he went back to heaven. This is a picture when he comes to earth again. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Well, now, who is he? The world doesn't know him. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Open up the gates. Let's let him in. He's not in today. This is the world that's rejected him. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's the King of glory. Selah. Think on that for a little while, friends. Now today, friends, our study brings us to the 25th Psalm. And when we come here today to the 25th Psalm, we've come to a new section. And there seems to be a letdown here. But this new segment probably can speak to our hearts in a most unusual way. These other psalms were dramatic. They were absolutely, to my judgment, sensational. But now we come to that which is personal and quiet and intimate. And we have from Psalm 25 through 39 this new segment. And these 15 psalms largely written by David. In fact, every one of them but one. And David here is speaking out of his personal experience, evidently. And I think that we have here a picture of the remnant of Israel in the time of trouble and distress that's coming in the future. So it has this prophetic, you see. It looks back to the past. It has the prophetic as it looks to the future. 
but it has a wonderful message and impact upon our lives for today. So these psalms are for the past, for the future, but also for the present. And that makes them quite wonderful. And we'll be hitting high points, but these are psalms that maybe you're not so well acquainted with. And yet, here is a place where a great many of us have learned, and I think in time of trouble, I find at night when I cannot sleep or when I'm away from home in a strange place and feel probably a little bit lonely, I find myself turning to the book of Psalms and a great many times to this particular section here because it came out of the experience of a man, first of all, that was going through this time of trouble and then looks into the future to help a people in the future, and it's for us today, too. So, will you listen now to Psalm 25? We have here in this psalm what I feel will be of great comfort and help to us, by the way. We have here in this first section a prayer, and this is a prayer that reveals the dependence that David had upon God. And it'll be in a day when that remnant will find themselves no place to fall back upon except upon God. And I'm not sure but what it's good for us today. But listen to the psalm now. Verse 1, Psalm 25. Under thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. I tell you, he's getting down to business now, is he not? Not just his voice now, but his soul. He says, O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Have you been in a place like that where it seemed to be failure and you didn't want to go down in a crushing defeat, either in your personal life or maybe in your business, maybe in your home life, maybe in your church life? And what a prayer this is. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed who transgress without a cause. Now listen to his pleading and his prayer here. He says, Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy path. Today, there are two ways that a man can go, God's way or his own way. We can all choose our own path. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, then thereof are the ways of death. But what a glorious thing this is, that we can call out to God. And this is a wonderful, wonderful psalm. It says, Lead me in thy truth, and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. It's a wonderful psalm, and it's a psalm calling now upon God to show him the way and to teach him. And that leads me to say that in the Hebrew, this is what is known as an acrostic psalm. That is, it's built on the Hebrew alphabet. Each section begins, actually, each verse, I should say, well, and that's each section, begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And we miss that, of course, in English. It's not there. Now listen to him here as he continues this prayer. 
Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Now, this is quite wonderful. He speaks of not only the kindnesses of God, but the loving kindnesses. It's difficult for me to define what loving kindness and kindness are, and it's a little difficult to distinguish between the two. But I think the definition that the little girl gave, she was asking Sunday school what was kindness and what was loving kindness. Well, she says when you go to your mother and you ask her for a piece of bread with butter on it, and she gives it to you, says, that's kindness. But when she puts jam on it without you asking her, that's loving kindness. Well, I don't know of any better way of describing it than that, my friend. You can't think of anything better than that. We find, therefore, in this prayer here, a prayer of David in time of trouble, and that godly remnant someday, but it speaks to the hearts of many of us today. And what was good for the saints of the past and the future is good for us today. It was good for Paul and Silas, and it's good enough for me. Now we have here this psalm with this wonderful prayer here. And I don't see how that you can read the psalms and not see that God does not have a plan and purpose for the nation Israel in the future. He's not through with them. And don't see how you could ever study the book of Romans and ever come to that conclusion, but some do. Now, he says, verse 7 here, he's asked God not only to remember thy tender mercies and loving kindnesses, but he's asking God to forget something. He says, remember not the sins of my youth. Forget them, he says, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Surely, goodness and mercy. Here we are again. Shall follow me all the days of my life. And he's praying to God for mercy and goodness. And God is rich in both of those. He has enough for you today, and there'll be some left over for me. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to need a whole lot of mercy, and I'd like a lot of goodness. Now we have, when we come here to this second section, we have the wonderful confidence. We have these expressions here. Listen to them. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will be guide in justice, and the meek will he teach the way. I just wish I could go into detail in these Psalms, but we cannot. And now notice verse 11. I'll highlight it. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it's great. And God forgives us for Christ's sake never for our sake. You and I don't merit that at all. God forgave David, we know that. And I told an old blasphemer that came to me when I was pastoring downtown Los Angeles, he came to me with that leering look and sneer on his face, and he made this statement. He says, why did God choose a man like David, who was such a big sinner? Well, I said to him, I said, you and I ought to take great comfort in that. If God would save David, it might be he'd save you and save me. This is a wonderful comfort. God has said concerning his people, that remnant someday, 
in Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sins no more. Now, as we come into this section here, we see verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. He will show them his covenant. There's so many people today that there really are just a question mark as far as the Christian life is concerned. They don't understand this verse of Scripture, and they don't understand why God does this, and don't understand that. And it's almost a dead giveaway when we are constantly in the questioning state because the secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. If we were walking with Him, and then we'd find out that many times we don't need to ask a question. We just put our hand in His and walk along. I used to take my daughter for a walk quite a bit, and she was a regular question box. She asked about everything in the way when she was little. And finally, she'd get tired. I'd pick her up. She'd put her arm around my neck, and the question time is over. <laughs> she just, you know, accepting everything from then on. I think a great many of us today ought to maybe forget a few of her questions and just put her hand in his and walk along with him today. Now, we come to this last section here, beginning actually at verse 15. And here we see in this final section, we're face to face again with that time of trouble that's coming for those people. David had a time of trouble, and we do too, but it'll be nothing compared to what's in the future. Now, will you notice, he says, "...mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn unto me and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Oh, bring thou me out of my distresses." Well, what a prayer this will be for the remnant in the time of trouble that's coming. And it's a good prayer for you and me today if we're in that place of trouble. And he says, "...look upon mine affliction and my pain." and forgive all my sins. That's when you and I are apt to confess our sins when we're in trouble. Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Oh, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Listen to him now. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. What a prayer. What a glorious prayer this is. And primarily, it's for the nation Israel. And in that day of trouble, it's coming on the earth. But a lot of God's saints have trouble down here today. And what a marvelous thing it is. Oh, deliver us, God, from our troubles. And deacon, years ago, down in the south, got up to give a testimony. And they were taking the passages or verses of Scripture that were meaningful to them. And this man got up and he said that the verse that had meant so much to him was, it came to pass. And everyone looked puzzled. The preacher got up and said to him, now look here, brother, how is it that that verse means so much to you? Well, he says, you know, when I have trouble, I always turn to that verse. And I read, it came to pass. And then he says, I thank God. My troubles came to pass that didn't come to stay. That may not be the exact interpretation of that verse, 
but it's the truth of Scripture. For that's what this psalm is saying here in the prayer. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. And we certainly can pray that prayer for ourselves today. But I'm sure you can see the primary interpretation is for the nation Israel. 